Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Presumption of Innocence, a podcast brought to you by the White Collar Criminal Defense and Regulatory Compliance Practice at Fox Rothschild. Today, I have the great fortune of being joined by my friend and special guest, Lacey Walker, Jr., who is the president of the Computer Forensic Practice, LLC. Lacey has many years of experience and a broad scope of expertise in connection with computer forensics investigations. And Lacey is, to say the least, my go-to when it comes to computer forensics investigations. Particularly today, we're gonna talk about mobile forensics investigations. I wanna present at the outset some staggering statistics that have been accumulated by Cisco in connection with their VNI complete forecast for 2021. Globally, Cisco predicts that IP traffic will grow threefold from 2016 to 2021, a compound annual growth of 24%. And something that I didn't even know existed, they predict that globally IP traffic will reach 278.1 exabytes, that's not terabytes or gigabytes, but exabytes, E-X-A-B-Y-T-E-S per month in 2021, which is up from merely 96.1 exabytes per month in 2016. They also go on to predict that globally internet traffic will grow 3.2 fold from 2016 to 2021 at a compounded annual growth rate of 26%. Now, what does that mean? And what is the impact of mobile devices on that? Just a staggering level of growth. Well, Cisco also says that uh, global mobile was 7% of total IP traffic in 2016 and will increase to 17% of total IP traffic as of 2021. And obviously, some of the data from 2021 will be still analyzed and flow in here as we begin 2022. As it relates to devices, Cisco says that globally there will have been 27.1 billion, with a B, network devices in 2021, up from 17.1 billion devices networked in 2016. As it relates to mobile-centric devices, Cisco also states in their forecast that globally 43% of all network devices will be mobile-connected as of 2021. And they state that smartphones in particular, there's about 6.2 billion of them in the world and accounting for approximately 23% of all network devices as of 2021, compared to 3.6 billion devices and 21% of network devices in just 2016. Now, Lacey, let's unpack that a little bit. That is just one staggering level of mobile connectivity. I know from working with you and working in a broad range of criminal defense and regulatory compliance matters that just about every case these days now has some sort of forensics component. 
But in particular, as it relates to mobile forensics against the backdrop of some of the statistics that I just read from that Cisco report, there is just this staggering amount of fluid data flying around in cyberspace. And how can one possibly capture that with such dramatic amounts of data like exabytes being talked about? Yeah, sure. You know, with regards to, to the mobile forensics, I, I've been doing this now for almost 20 years. If you look back at things 20 years ago, yeah, you had a few, the BlackBerry devices were big. The little handheld PDAs were, were also large, you know, about 20 years ago. Uh, but if you look at things today, everybody has a phone, everybody has a tablet. A lot of people do a lot of work functions on those things, as well as, you know, just personal things. Everybody from like sixth grade up has a phone. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And with that being said, yeah, it certainly makes the world a little bit more difficult with regards to uh, getting your arms around where all the data is located, how to basically identify this data and preserve this data. So from a computer forensic standpoint, you know, we certainly come in, we help people identify where the information is located. iPhones, for example, um, you have a lot of information, not only on the local device, but also you have it in the cloud itself. So if we examine an iPhone, uh, we also want to take a look at the cloud as well um, to see if there's any backup information there. So one device can turn into two, three, four, five different avenues of, of things to look at uh, with regards to mobile forensics. Now, in particular, comparing, we, we started talking about 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you had a PC that was plugged in. It required its own room and office and desk and cabinet. Then we kind of morphed into laptops. Now we have these devices that fit in our pants pocket, which have enough computing power, or perhaps more computing power than the computers that launched the sh shuttle exploration to the moon. Talk to us a little bit about the fluidity of that data and what, what that means from a perspective of examining the bits and bytes from a forensics perspective. You know, this device can go with me anywhere now. It's not just simply something that has to sit in its own designated cabinet in a designated room at a designated location. Talk to us about the challenges that that fluidity provides. And then from a forensics perspective, how does that help us with investigations or hurt us as the case may be? Sure, certainly with the, the mobile devices, you know, like you said, you could take them pretty much anywhere, everywhere. You know, you can have a meeting sitting in your backyard or outside in the parking lot. So there, there's a lot of places where you can travel to and, and actually have your devices. Uh, from a forensic standpoint, obviously grabbing a device, there's a lot of information stored locally on the device. From a forensic image standpoint, we can look at text messages. We can look at social media apps, you know, the WhatsApp, Snapchat, uh, Facebook, for example. With a uh, with a forensic image of a cell phone, basically, you know, we're we're getting a snapshot in time of what's stored locally on the device. Location data. Correct. Yeah, location data is actually a very um, important thing on mobile devices. So, for example, anytime a picture is taken, specifically with an iPhone. There's geographical location hidden inside of that picture. So buried within all the, the metadata, there are basically coordinates of where that actual picture was taken. In addition to that, anytime your, your cell phone accesses a cell tower, I can geographically locate 
where you were at any point in time on your cell phone. So I've had several cases where that bit of information was very critical um, in identifying where a particular person was located from, from a cell tower point of view. And with regards to pictures, obviously, you know, there, there was one particular case where there was a, a party and one person saying they weren't there and they received the picture from someone else, but the picture <laughs> metadata showed it was taken from their particular device and I was able to identify the coordinates of when and where that picture was taken. So there's a lot of information that is stored on the local device that can certainly help out or in some instances hurt uh, with regards to, to forensics. Yeah, I mean, I was reading in recent news about the use of certain messaging apps, which we'll get to in a few minutes, being central focus of a prominent securities regulator against a prominent investment bank in an effort of certain traders to subvert certain compliance controls that were placed around their messaging systems and using certain commercially available apps in an effort to try to fly under the, the regulator's radar when discussing certain trading activity, resulting in an enormous fine. And we'll talk in a little bit about how that might come to bear and some sure. of the hallmarks of an investigation when you start looking into those types of apps. But let's talk at a broad perspective for a moment and start literally with the differences between the types of phones and mobile devices that we have on the market right this moment here in the present day. Sure. Uh, and, and some of the challenges that you as a forensic investigator might face based on that. So I'm talking the differences between sort of the Apple iOS platform and an Android device. And so, so break yeah. it down for us. What, what are yeah. the primary uh, challenges that you face when dealing with those two principal types of devices that are available on the market today? With the Apple devices and Android devices, there certainly are a lot of challenges out there. For example, we'll start with the Apple iPhone. You know, past history has shown, uh, I believe there was a couple of terrorist events where uh, the government was actually trying to gain access to a phone in order to identify some information. Apple, uh, to say the least, is a very secure uh, platform. They work on security a lot um, in a sense where uh, they try to encrypt a lot of things. So it certainly makes a computer forensics uh, examination of an, of an iPhone a little bit more difficult with, with all the security features that an Apple iPhone would, would have. Androids, you know, you have the, the Samsung platform, you have the Windows phones. It's a different level of security, but if I had to compare the two, I would say it's probably more challenging with the Apple iPhones than with the Android devices. Um, there's a lot of products out there available to forensics people like myself um, that can actually get around a lot of the security, but in the grand scheme of things, certainly within the past 10 years, um, I, I see more issues with the Apple products than I would with the Android-based uh, devices. And it's more or less, you know, with, with, with Apple, if you ever look at your, your iPhone, you're always seeing, hey, there's an update today. Well, every time there's an update, guess what? The forensics people would have to update their forensic software in order to operate and be able to interact with these devices. So it's, sometimes it's kind of hard to stay ahead of the curve uh, with regards to these devices, whether it is the Apple iPhone or, or an Android device. So, you know, I've, I've had instances where we got a forensic image, but we weren't able to parse it until a month or two later once the forensic software has actually caught up. So you do run into those challenges along the way, certainly if you know someone's updated their, their phone recently or, or prior to an investigation. Now, 
in the traditional concept of digital forensics, we talk a lot about the ability to potentially restore deleted data and what is and is not recoverable. And the classic example that I've always been told and sort of a guiding premise behind some of my work in the early days of digital forensics with the more static environment outside of the mobile platforms that we're talking about today was that once you delete something that goes into unallocated slack space and then when the device needs that memory it overwrites it so for a period of time it is conceivable that that which a user may believe is deleted may in fact not actually be deleted and be recoverable how does that work in a mobile environment well that's a very interesting question um if we could rewind and, and go back, let's say maybe a couple years ago, a lot of what you said could actually correlate to the mobile device. For example, with the iPhones, if someone deleted a text message, um, we can forensically go in and a large percent of the time we can actually recover that deleted content. But as things progress, software writers will update their code. Um, you know, they want to make the phone faster and smarter. Apple, for example, has actually changed how they actually store the text messages, where now if something was deleted, the likelihood of recovery has gone down because the databases of where this information stored is basically overwritten a, a lot sooner, a lot quicker uh, in order to actually make the device run a little bit faster. So is that due in large to how much functionality these devices now have and the various processes that they can run simultaneously, for example? Absolutely. You know, you can see every new release of, of iPhone, they always say something's faster, something's stronger, something is more robust. Uh, well, to get that level of speed, that level of having every little gadget on your phone, things would have to change on the back end. So if they can minimize unused space, such as deleted content and make your phone run faster, that's where they attack it uh, in order to make your device run more efficiently. Is there a correlation between the memory size of the device and the probability of success in recovering deleted information? Nowadays, the answer to that is no. Um, the, the way that the, the databases on iPhones and, and the Android devices are stored, the databases itself are updated somewhat real time now. So um, it's done in a fashion that, that you want to have your devices run a little bit faster, you want to be able to access your data much quicker, and they update things real time nowadays versus yesteryear when things stood there for a while and a forensics person can actually come in and retrieve and recover a lot of stuff. So with the newer, better products, you trade off the ability to recover and retrieve that type of information from the past. Now, mobile devices to me, modern mobile devices to me, at least seem tethered in some respects to a parallel cloud universe where some of the data backs up to a cloud for lack of a more sophisticated way of saying it how does that impact a mobile digital forensics investigation sure absolutely and sort of piggybacking off of you know what we were just talking about the deleted data uh, we always take a look to see hey is there a backup somewhere Sometimes people forget that they had backed up a device and we have a backup from last year or last month. Well, we can look at that backup and then identify any content that was deleted. So with the Apple devices, you know, you, you have the, the iCloud account. 
with the Android devices, depending on the device you have. For example, Samsung has a has a backup. Google Drive is also a uh, a backup avenue for for Android devices. So there's a lot of data up there in the cloud that you know, with some of the phones by default, will back up to these cloud repositories. And from a forensic standpoint, we don't limit it to just the phone. We want to see what else is out there in the cloud. Because there's a lot of times there's a lot of rich uh, information that's out there in, in the cloud world. I would imagine that the cloud can somewhat keep you honest as it relates to something that might have been deleted off of the mobile device itself. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I always advise clients, you know, with regards to that, you know, we want to attack things from multiple sides. So not just the physical phone itself. So the cloud, I have a snapshot in time of your phone. I can then compare it to what you currently have and sort of uh, identify what's there, what's not there. Also, in addition to that, you know, we also advise people, hey, if, if you think text messages were deleted, well, you can send a subpoena to the phone providers. They may not have the actual text messages. They would have uh, information with regards to messages being sent and received. So from that standpoint, you could do a correlation with regards to timestamps of when messages were sent and received, and then review what you actually have from your forensic image to sort of say, hey, yeah, there were 10 messages that were deleted. I don't have it in the image, but the phone records, which were provided by an independent source, i.e. The, the phone provider, can sort of provide the additional information to fill in the blanks. Yeah, I remember being involved in a pretty large investigation with you back in, several years ago, where we had to do a timeline analysis of USB drive access based upon some allegations of mass data theft from a more static digital environment. And I was fairly astonished about the ability of some of your forensic software to correlate various streams of data like you're talking about. I'd imagine with the mobile device and the comparison to the cloud, that's not you doing that manually. There's some software helping you, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's just so much data out there, you know, as, as you had said in the, in the beginning, um, to manually go through it and do that, you know, would certainly take, you know, months, if not years, depending on the, the usage of the device. So forensic software, you know, is pretty smart with regards to doing, as you said, the timeline analysis, sort of filling in the blanks, doing comparisons between forensic images and you know, actual content you get from a phone provider. So thankfully that the software has been able to stand up the test of time and improve over time uh, to make our job a little bit easier. Talk to me a second about phone service provider data. And I guess it's probably broader than just phones. It's probably mobile device service provider data. How can that be useful in a forensics investigation? Certainly, um, you know, one of the things we had just mentioned, uh, for example, is the text messages. Um, a lot of phone providers, Verizon, AT&T, you know, whoever servicing phones, uh, will have records of when messages are sent and received. So they may not have the content, but they will have that additional information. In addition to that, you know, we had spoke earlier about cell tower information they will also have that information as well. Um, you'll see this a lot on missing person cases and, and things of that nature where, hey, let's let's check the cell tower signals so we can identify, you know, where the person was last located. So all that information is stored, you know, with the phone provider. 
for example, with Apple, iMessages aren't quote unquote with the Verizons or AT&Ts of the world. There's actually stored at Apple. So the iMessage content is sort of a separate text message application, if you will. And Apple would have that type of information stored. So you got to think sort of outside of the box, not just, you know, the Verizons of the world, but sometimes the device specific people would also contain um, useful information with regards to the phone. But it seems to me that there are lots of custodians of potentially useful information along the path just by virtue of the fact that the device is mobile because like you said you have the provider who's giving you the connectivity you have potentially the company that makes the operating system and some of the gears that make the device work and then you have other separate third-party potential applications that would be running in that environment all coalescing around potentially relevant issues in the investigation yeah, absolutely. It gets kind of uh, <laughs> kind of complicated, if you will, with regards to what data do we need, where do we need to get it from. I, I remember a case not less than a month ago where council had to subpoena six different um, individuals with regards to getting information related to an iPhone. So the WhatsApp messaging is is by the WhatsApp people. Uh, the iMessages are with Apple. The phone provider has the SMS messages, so you can just look there. You know, that's three alone that could actually be pretty useful with regards to to text messaging itself. So we didn't even touch on the on the the other apps. So you know, you have the Facebooks of the world, the Snapchats, a whole you know large universe of other applications that are out there that haven't even scratched the surface yet. So seems to me that you have to be more of a detective perhaps now with the way that mobile devices work perhaps than you used to have to be with those computers i talked about that you know stood in their own box in their own room and didn't move anywhere now you have to be looking for three and four different levels removed from the actual device itself yeah absolutely in comparison to computers mobile devices tablets certainly have evolved with regards to where the information is located, what additional information is out there. If it was just a traditional computer, you know, it, it's, yeah, things update over time, but the forensic software can sort of stay ahead of the curve um, as well as a forensic practitioner. We know what to look for in a Windows operating system or an Apple operating system, whereas every day there's thousands, if not you know, millions of new applications that are being developed and provided to users to uh, use out there. And you know, it's, sometimes it's kind of hard to stay ahead of the curve with regards to all these different applications that are out there. Lacey, inquiring minds want to know end-to-end -end encryption for messaging apps. Can it be broken? Does it work? Are messages in those end-to-end -end encryption apps actually more secure? That's a very tricky question and a very loaded question. <laughs> it all comes down to it depends. Uh, it depends on the device itself. Recently, I, I was doing a case with WhatsApp that has actual end-to-end -end encryption. The WhatsApp data was actually uploaded to the cloud and all that data is encrypted. So and all the forensic software in the world right now currently cannot access and parse that information because WhatsApp has recently changed how they handle the encryption. So 
it's one of those things that, you know, we had spoke about earlier where, yeah, we have the data, but we can't actually tell you what the data is until the software is updated. And sometimes that'll take, you know, months for a forensic software provider to update its, its software so that way it can interact with the, with the new encryption. There's always backdoors uh, with regards to encryption. There's certainly a lot of tricks that we, we use in the field with regards to gaining access to some of this encrypted information. So uh, to, to answer your question, yes, encryption is a huge problem. Um, there certainly are ways and workarounds in order to, to gain access. It, it certainly has make, made our job a lot more difficult, but there's a way and methodology for everything. Um, but there are you know, newer applications out there that can honestly say right now, yeah, we're, we're waiting for the forensic software to catch up to. I remember reading about a high profile case in which the end-to-end -end encryption application was utilized for messages in question, but unbeknownst to the people communicating, logs of those communications were being created, generated, and stored in a way that was completely accessible and essentially undermined the entire intention of using the encrypted app. So talk to me about that. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly you know recall that, that particular case. And a lot of people, you, you got to read the fine print uh, with regards to how these applications work. Yes, end to end, it's encrypted. However, a lot of times information is stored somewhere else unbeknownst to, to those individuals and can be accessed by either subpoena or forensic practitioner in order to you know, circumvent the, the actual end-to-end -end encryption. A lot of times we get cases where the WhatsApp information, for example, well, if it's stored on an Android device, it's a little bit more secure. If it's stored on an iPhone device, there's a lot of applications out there that can break that encryption and allow us to parse out that information and review what, what content's in there. Um, a lot of times this information is backed up to the cloud and people don't realize when you back up information to the cloud, sometimes it's not encrypted. So what's encrypted on your phone may not be encrypted in your backup. So um, those are certainly areas that we take a look at with regards to being a, a computer forensics practitioner. Uh, in order to to get around the, the issues of encryption. What is the most typical thing that you pull out from a mobile forensics investigation? What what are you most frequently looking for in connection with those types of investigations? Um, it 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 really varies. Um, you know, each case is a little bit different. Um, a lot of times people just want to see the communications. So, you know, we, we have the various you know, text messages, WhatsApp messages. There's a whole other community of different messaging applications that people use with regards to communicating with each other. And, you know, they think that, hey, if I use this particular app, it's not going to be found on my phone or it's stored somewhere else. And unbeknownst to them, yeah, we can actually see that communication and we're able to get that data. So, you know, the majority of the investigations that we get, um, it's more or less the, the communications that play a significant role outside of that, you know, certainly phone call logs are, are, are very important and crucial and actually web browsing history. Believe it or not, people do a lot of things on the Internet and, you know, with the forensics of, of these devices, we can actually analyze and see what the person was looking at on their device at certain periods of time. So those are probably the three main areas that, you know, we, we touch on in investigations, but Overall, I think the communications part of it is is the 
probably the, the higher profile with regards to these types of investigations. Well, I know that you and I have been working together long enough that we've sort of seen the evolution into these devices and some of the new types of data that we've brought to bear to use in various cases. Again, I said from the outset that I don't think there's, it's really the exception, I should say, these days where there is not a mobile forensics component to the evidence in the particular case and not the rule. It's virtually every case where we're seeing these types of issues come to play. What's next? What's next in mobile forensics? Where do you see the field going? Where do you see the evidentiary value evolving? What's next? You'll, you'll see a, a good trend of there's applications out there that can sort of mimic cell phones. So for example, Google Phone is actually a phone application that you can use on your, your iPhone or your, your Android device. You can make phone calls. You can make text messaging. You can access it from a computer. So basically, it's making your mobile phone even more accessible, even if you don't have your mobile phone itself. So I, I think that would be more of the trend, um, more accessibility. In addition to that, you, you have the smart watches. That has played a significant role um, as well with regards to forensics. We, we get a lot of information off of the smart watches that you know people aren't aware of. If you delete something on one thing, and let's say your watch wasn't on, Hey, if we can pull your, your, your smartwatch, we can actually get that type of information as well. The more difficult things that, you know, we're seeing that the trend that's going now, again, it's going to be more of the encryption, uh, more of the software being updated and the lack of the forensic software actually being able to keep ahead of the curve. You're always going to be maybe a step or two behind because uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of testing of these new applications and make sure that we can actually access and, and view content. So it's just trying to keep up with the curve is the trend that you're seeing now, especially these devices, you know, getting new operating systems, the latest and greatest and increasing the speed of these devices. Well, from someone that loves to use digital evidence in my cases, and, and you know that because you've testified at trial with me and we've had certainly some interesting experiences together. What I'm hearing from you is that there's more potential sources developing virtually every day of digital evidence out there. And as this big concept of big data evolves, we're gonna have more and more buckets of potential evidence. And, and, and I guess the converse of that is something that I often tell my clients is, if you're not willing to see whatever you're writing in your digital world as exhibit A in a court filing, you shouldn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, I always, if I talk to, you know, kids in the community and stuff, I always tell them, hey, if you don't want your mother to read what you have on there, don't put it on your device. <laughs> well, Lacey, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. And I think we could probably spend all day talking about this subject. And there's a lot to unpack for sure. I look forward to having you potentially back when we have some new developments. But thanks for the great overview today. And, uh, Thanks everyone for joining us on the Presumption of Innocence. Thank you.